morning. Great to see y'all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm part of our preaching team. If you're especially perceptive, uh, you might have noticed as you parked in the parking lot today that the trees are quite a bit thinner. Uh, Some of them are gone. Uh, And that's because we got hit really hard this week uh, with all the storms that happened. And those Palo Verdes don't always hold up under it real well. Um, And so yesterday we had just a bunch of guys that are on call. There's a bunch of folks, uh, some of you maybe in this room are part of that group that are just on call to help when a storm hits or something happens to show up on campus and to be able to clean things up and get the trees, uh, the branches cut and the things put away so that uh, the campus looks nice here. I've been told these guys actually, they they have a name for their little uh, volunteer group. It's the Stormtroopers. They're the Stormtroopers. And I thought, who wouldn't want to serve on that? Like, that's pretty, that's pretty sweet. And so I just uh, want to give a shout out to the Stormtroopers, uh, to Mark Burns and the team there that did that. And uh, it, it's just one more reminder that I think it's as easy to forget. You come in and everything looks nice and there's a lot of stuff just taken care of. The reason stuff's taken care of is because people step up to serve. And so uh, thank you for those of you who are stepping up in a variety of ways, and uh, I just am so grateful for how God's using that. So uh, one of my favorite questions to ask uh, when I'm talking to someone that doesn't know the Lord, if, if I have the opportunity to begin to talk about spiritual things, one of the, the best uh, diagnostic and conversation moving questions is this. I like to ask this, if you died today, what percentage chance sure are you that you would go to heaven? So I say, hey, listen, I'm not rooting for this. You know, I I don't want you to die, but everyone's going to die eventually. The statistics on death are quite, uh, they're impressive. You know, it's 100% of people die. But you, so if you were going to die today, if you died today, how confident are you? What percentage would you give yourself? What percentage chance would you give yourself that you would go to heaven? You got a lot of different answers. Uh, Most people I talk to, almost no one says zero. Uh, most people go, ah, I don't know. Ah, maybe I'm better than my neighbor. So, you know, uh, you know. Uh, what's interesting is that actually becomes an important question, not just when you're thinking about following Christ, but when you are a follower of Christ. So I want to ask you today, those of you who maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not, but wherever you are, what percentage chance, if you died today, what percentage chance confident are you that you would go to heaven? What this passage is about in 1 John 3 and what today's sermon is about, it's, I've, got, I've got really just one thing I want to see happen. I would like you to be able to say, I'm 100% sure I'd go to heaven. Or if you're not 100% sure, to at least be able to know how you could be. So that's what we're going to try to do in this passage. And that idea is really a key part of why John wrote this book. We're going through the book of 1 John. We're just going through a little bit of a chunk at a time. But at the very end of the book, John gives us his reason for writing. He's older now. He had followed Jesus as a teenager. Now he's an apostle, maybe the last one alive. He's writing this church to a, uh, this letter to a group of discouraged people in the church. Here's what he says in 1 John 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to know. I want you to be confident. I want you to be sure. I want you to be at ease in the presence of God. I want you to know that you have eternal life. The, the theological way of talking about this is assurance of salvation. That's the phrase. Now, my guess is nobody this week was sitting around going, or maybe not nobody, but most of you weren't going around going, oh, let me think about assurance of salvation. Like, yeah, that, that's like, it can be a little abstract. But here's what I know. A lot of us this week felt insecure. 
A lot of us this week felt like, I don't know, I don't feel so sure of myself. A lot of us this week felt hesitant to pray. A lot of us this week felt anxious and unsettled, the restless heart. And so this might actually be more relevant than you think. It, it is actually one of the most important questions you could ever ask. It's just not always on the top of our minds. But the questions that are on the top of our minds, would, we'd find more comfort as we answer them if we could answer this question first. So here's where we're going to go today. Here's the roadmap. Is we're going to look at what assurance of salvation is. We're going to look at why you should want assurance of salvation. And we're going to look at how to have assurance of salvation. So what it is, why you should want it, how to have it. That's where we're going. So pray with me. Um, Father, I pray now that you would send your spirit through your word to provide comfort, to provide conviction, to provide guidance and leadership uh, to this moment, to our hearts. Thank you for your great and precious promises. Help us to believe them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, what assurance of salvation is. When we're talking about assurance of salvation, what are we talking about? Well, look at verse 19 of chapter 3. And by the way, uh, because John talks about this being like the main reason he wrote this book, this stuff is showing up the whole day. So you're actually really going to want a Bible in front of you because throughout the message, there's some times where I'm going to say, hey, turn back to chapter 2, turn ahead to chapter 4. So you're going to want a copy of the Bible. They're on the seats in front of you uh, if you don't have one. So verse 19, here's what it says. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, right? That's what he said. That's why I'm writing this letter, so that you would know that you have eternal life. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Sometimes you just go, I don't know where I stand. I don't know. John's going, I want you to have your heart reassured. I want you to have confidence. I want you to have assurance. I really like how the New International Version translates this verse 19. It it, it says, By this we will know that we're of the truth and can set our hearts at rest in his presence. Wouldn't you love your heart to be at rest? Like I often say, like I want a busy life, but I don't want a busy heart. But it's real easy for one to lead to the other. So like a lot of us would go, I'll just take a, a, I'd take a heart at rest. Well, what if the heart at rest could actually be in God's presence? How much better would that be? So that's what assurance of salvation is, is that you'd have a heart reassured, you'd have a heart at rest in his presence. You'd have a heart that wasn't condemned. You'd have confidence before God. Look what he says in verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, so there's times when our heart is like, I don't know where I stand. I don't feel so confident. I don't feel so assured. Whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So that's what assurance of salvation is. It's, it's confidence. It's being reassured. It's having a heart at rest in his presence. This is the exact same idea he started with in this whole section back in chapter 2, verse 28. You can turn back there, 228. This whole section started, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so this is what it's saying. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, John's going, I don't want you to flinch away. I want you to feel confident. And in this section, he's saying, I don't actually want you to wait until he comes back to experience that. I want you to experience it now. Here's how you can have assurance. Here's how you could have confidence. Now, it's an ongoing process. As it said in verse 20, sometimes the heart feels condemned, sometimes the heart doesn't, verse 21. 
So here's our definition that we're using today of assurance of salvation. Here's what it is. Assurance of salvation is the internal sense that we are truly born again and saved. It's an internal sense. So it's, it's a bit, get this, of a subjective experience of what would be an objective reality. Here's what I mean. Assurance of salvation is not the same as salvation, right? You either are saved or you're not. You either are forgiven of your sin or you're not. You either have a real relationship with God or you don't. You either have been born again and had your heart transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit of God or you haven't and your heart is still stony and dead before God. You either have a genuine connection and relationship with God where you're his child or you're his enemy. It's one or the other, right? That's, that's, that's salvation. Now, the question we're talking about today is not, are you saved? It's how do you know if you're saved? Do you get the difference? It, it, it's saying, okay, you have, this, this thing is reality. How do you start to experience it? So uh, one of the things I do as a pastor sometimes is I get to officiate weddings and, and th- something just stunning happens to me uh, in a wedding. I just, I, I can't get over how bizarre this is, right? Like before the, before the ceremony, you're sitting there and you're joking around with the groom and you might get to, as a pastor, I might get to go see the bride and oh, you look so lovely. And, and you're talking to folks, but it's like, hey, like last call, you could get out of this, you know? Anyone wearing running shoes? No, okay, we're good, you know? And so like, you're going into it like, they are clearly not married. And then, the, and then the ceremony happens, and I do good weddings, which means they're short. <laughs> and uh, this is stunning. They, they come into the thing, single, 17 minutes later, they're married. Why? Well, because at some point I said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride. And I'm thinking, why do I get to say that? Like, I... I don't have any, you know, special power. Like, what in the world? And so here's, here's the reality. They come into the wedding single. They leave the wedding married. They have a new status. They are objectively married, okay? But they don't really feel married. It, that takes some time, right? Because marriage is saying you're actually one flesh. And in the wedding ceremony, you're declared to be one flesh, but then it takes time to actually experience what it is to be one flesh. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of conversation. It takes a lot of fights. It takes a lot of counseling. It takes a lot of, lot of things. Because here's the deal. You can be married. The, the question is, what's your experience of that connection? That's the same thing we're talking about. You can be saved and not be very confident that you're saved, or you can be saved and be confident that you're saved. On the other hand, you can be unsaved but think you are, or you can be unsaved and know you're not. So you get the distinction? This is about the internal sense that you're truly born again and saved. And I just wanna say what good news that God would choose to save sinners like us. 
that we could be born again to a living hope. The truth is that we are rebels by nature and we are rebels by choice. God says, here's the path of life. We're like, no, not interested. I can do it on my own. And God in his rich mercy sends Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death, to be buried, to be raised to the right hand of the Father, to come back to judge the living and the dead. And if we're in Christ, we will be forgiven. What news? That's incredible. Now, that's great that that's true. How do you on a week in, week out, day in, day out basis have confidence that that's not just true for people out there, but it's true for you? That's what I want for you. So let's talk about why. Why do you want that? Well, because it just provides incredible comfort. Look again at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. This is about your heart before God. This is about your relationship with God. This is about your heart at rest in his presence. Look at verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Can you imagine feeling so connected to God that it was like you were like almost in each other? That's that idea of abiding. Uh, John writes about that in, in John chapter 15. That, uh, that Jesus says he's the vine and we're the branches. That, that's connected. That's the life of the branches and the vine pulsing through one another. He's saying you could be so connected to God, it's like you're just pulsing through each other. What happens when that happens? Well, look at verse 22. If we have confidence before God, verse 21, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. In other words, you start asking differently. Because now it's not just a laundry list of stuff you want God to do for you, but you actually want God. That's, that's what this is. So you could say in a sense why you should want uh, assurance of salvation is so you can pray. And get this, prayer is not just an exchange of information. Prayer is an experience of connection. It is the life of God and your life flowing in and out of each other. That's what prayer is supposed to be. A lot of times it doesn't feel like that to us. A lot of times prayer for us is like, you know when you have to make a phone call to somebody and uh, you're like, ah, I guess, I guess I gotta call them. And so you call them and while, the, while it's ringing, you know what you're thinking? I hope this goes to the voicemail. <laughs> Why? Because you're like, I don't really wanna talk to them. I don't, ah. it'd be great if they could just see I called. But I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to, ah, I don't wanna have to do it. Like, Come on, come on, come on, come on. Yes, voicemail. That's how a lot of us treat prayer. And the reason is because we don't feel close to God. We go, you know what, God, I'll lob you some voicemail prayers. But you know what, I'd really rather we didn't connect at a deep level because I don't feel good about what you'd see. Assurance of salvation is to say you can have confidence before God. Have your heart reassured before him an experience of connection. I want you to have that. I, I was thinking about just my son, Hank. He's the, he's the lightest of my four kids now. He's the smallest. He's the easiest to pick up. But this happened with all my kids as they were little. And uh, Hank is, is six. And there's times where, you know, he and I will be walking together, uh, sometimes holding hands, sometimes just next to each other. I think about like we're going through the parking lot, you know, and we're holding hands. And at that point, Hank is not at any point wondering whether he's my son. Uh, neither is anyone else who sees us, by the way. We look pretty similar. And so... 
Uh, you know, he knows he's my son, but there's times when I'll reach down and I'll scoop him up. And I'll say, hey, buddy, I'm so glad you're my boy. And I'll kiss his neck and I'll squeeze him. Listen, is he more my son at that point? No. Is his confidence in being my son a lot bigger? Yeah. That's what I want for you. Listen, you can't lose your salvation. If you're truly saved, if you're truly born again, we believe the doctrine of eternal security, once saved, always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. You can lose your experience of being scooped up by God if you begin to wander away from him. And so John says, I want you to have that experience. I want you to feel the scooped upness of being a child of God. If you're a child of God, I want you to feel like it. So we look at what assurance is, why you should want it. Let's spend the most time on this, how to have it. How to have assurance of salvation. How do you get this? Like, okay, you're saved, you're not, but how do you get assurance? And so th- th- this is where I gotta just bust out the old school. I don't do this a lot, but uh, occasionally there's just an acronym that helps a lot with this. And uh, so here's an acronym for us, is the acronym OLD. And the way you can remember this is just say, you know what, I wanna grow old with Jesus. I wanna, I wanna walk with Jesus and have a close connection with him until I'm old, right? Okay, so it's O-L-D. So here's how we're gonna think about this. And this passage looks at all three of these and the rest of the book looks at all three of these as well. So if we're gonna grow old with Jesus, if we're gonna have assurance of salvation, the first thing we need is obedience, obedience. Obedience is about the moral dimension. Uh, here's what it says in verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It says this in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So there's this sense in which you have to obey God in order to feel close to God. Now get this, I wanna be absolutely crystal clear. You, do, you are not a Christian on the basis of your obedience. Your obedience does not save you. Your righteousness does not give you, get you into heaven. Your goodness does not forgive your sin. The only thing that forgives your sin is Jesus Christ on the cross. Faith in him, trust in him, but your obedience helps you to feel close to him. That's what he continues to say in the rest of this book. Look at chapter one, verse seven, flip back there. Chapter one, verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You walk in the darkness, you go, ah, it doesn't feel so close. But you walk in the light, you got fellowship with him. Look at chapter two, verse three. Chapter two, verse three. By this we know that we have come to know him. There it is again. How can you know? All right, here's how. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We saw the same thing in chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. No one who, keeps, who, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then chapter five, verse three, look at this. Chapter five, verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 
So again, you're not saved by your obedience, but your obedience will give you confidence that you truly are saved. Here's uh, one way to think about it. When I was in college, I, I played in a summer baseball league with some guys from other schools. And uh, we were in Kansas City, Missouri. It was real hot, real humid. And uh, I didn't have a car that summer, but one of my buddies had a car. And we were staying at this host family together. And it was hot, and we were driving around, and our host mom was just awesome. And so she uh, cut us up a bunch of watermelon slices. It was hot. We were college guys. We were hungry, and you know, it was refreshing. So we'd be driving around in my buddy's Volkswagen Jetta, you know, cruising. Pretty cool, you know, in the Jetta. And uh, eating the watermelon. And so I take, take a slice of watermelon. And I get down to the Rhine, and I do what I always did, which is roll down the window and throw the Rhine out the window. And he stops and he goes, hey, what are you doing? I said, I threw the Rhine out the window. He said, well, I know. What are you doing? He's like, that's littering. That's not littering. The birds are going to eat it, man. It's like biodegradable. It's like, that's totally, it's not like I, I didn't throw a Big Mac carton out the window. It's a, you know, they're going to eat it. He goes, yeah, well, I, I don't agree. I think it's litter. All right. A little while later, I get another slice, get down to the Rhine, roll down the window, throw it out the window. He goes, hey, I just told you that's litter. Don't do that. And I'm like, dude, it's not litter. He's like, listen, it's my car. Don't do that. A little while later, <laughs> he had another slice, eat it down to the Rhine. I'm looking at him from the back seat. He's looking at me in the mirror. I roll down the window, and he pulls over, and he goes, I've been driving you around all summer. I asked you to do one thing, and you just can't even do it. Now, listen, we were still friends. We were still roommates. We were still teammates. But how confident did I feel in our friendship at that moment? Not particularly. It wasn't particularly high. Because he's going, I had, you had one job. I asked you to do one thing. Just right? and, and it's the same way. If, if we are going to just flagrantly, blatantly, unrepentantly walk in sin, walk in darkness, walk in selfishness, just do the things that flee, please our flesh, that please our current momentary desire to get all the fulfillment we can get, and we're just going to look at God and go, God, pff, deal with it. Chuck. Like, listen, you might still be saved if you do that, but you will not feel confident about it. And get this, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't. It should make you go, oh, I don't know where I am with God. Maybe I need to repent. Yeah. So obedience is the first way to have assurance, is walk in the light. Walk by faith. Walk in obedience. Do the things that you know please God. All right, here's the L of old. We're going to grow old with Jesus. The L is love. So in addition to obedience, which is the moral dimension, we have love, which is the social dimension. Love is part of this morality, but it's so specific that we got to draw it out in this passage. And so look at verse 19. Verse 19 in chapter 3 says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. And you go, well, by, by what? Well, by what he just said. Right? I just said something important, and by this, by the thing I just said, we'll know we're of the truth. Okay, so how are we going to know if we're of the truth? We've got to look at the verse ahead. Well, look at verse 18. Right? That's what he's referring to. Here's verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, by loving in, in deed and truth, by being a loving person, by loving your brother, by loving your neighbor, you will have confidence. You'll know that you're of the truth. You'll reassure your heart before God. 
This is in verse 23 as well. Look at it. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So there's a social dimension here. This is not just about our morality between us and God, but it's about the way we love one another and the way we love our neighbors. This goes throughout this whole book. Look back to chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In other words, you're going to have a lot of confidence. Look at 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There's obedience. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's love. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love God, or I'm sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. He's saying, listen, God has so loved you in Christ. God has so revealed himself to you in Christ. God has so poured himself out to you in love because that's who God is. And if you're born of God, then you got to do the same thing. And if you're not doing the same thing, then you should start to go, "Ah, am I really okay? Am I really a child of God? But if you're sacrificing, if you're loving, if you're warm, if you're friendly, if if you're going like, hey, this isn't just about my moral obedience, this is about my social relationship too, then that will give you assurance. But man, as as much as God has loved us, we gotta be loving people. There's this incredible parable Jesus tells in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, he tells this remarkable story about this man who owed a tremendous debt. And he says in it that the guy owed, here's how much money he owed, 10,000 talents. You go, that means nothing to me. All right, well, here you go. Here's the conversion. A talent is a monetary term. A talent equates 20 years of a laborer's wages. That's a lot. This guy's in debt, 10,000 of those. So 10,000 times 20. So if you put this in today's money, this guy's in debt about $120 million, i.e. he's filing for bankruptcy. (laughs) Like he's not getting out of this. And he goes and he pleads for mercy and sure enough, he is granted mercy and his debt is forgiven, it is wiped clean, it is absolutely, he doesn't have to pay it back anymore. And then that same man goes to someone who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was another monetary unit, a denarius, referred to a day's wage for a laborer. So, a hundred of, he's, you know, this guy owes him a hundred of those, about $20,000 in today's. And he goes to that guy and says, pay every last penny or I'm going to put you in jail. And Jesus' parable is to go, are you kidding me? If you've been forgiven this much, if you've been loved this much, then you got to forgive and love that much to other people too. And if you don't do it, you should question, am I really forgiven? Am I really loved by God? Because the love of God changes a heart. And if I've still got a hard, stingy, selfish, others cold heart, I at very least need to stop and go, Lord, are we okay? So there's obedience, there's love, the third one is, is doctrine. It's doctrine, a theological dimension. And to help you think through this, I want you for just a moment to picture, uh, picture with me an elf. 
Picture an elf. Can you see the elf in your mind? Okay, I wonder if this is what you pictured, okay? Did you picture an elf who was tall and elegant with long golden hair and a crown and an incredible archer who could shoot arrows very quickly and who actually even then when hit by an arrow would never die because he in fact is immortal. Is that what you thought of when you thought of an elf? Well, the question is, or the answer is it depends. It depends how often you've read Lord of the Rings, (laughs) right? Because in Lord of the Rings, that's what an elf is. An elf is an immortal archer warrior. Is that what you pictured? Or did you picture a bunch of little guys scurrying around a tree trying not to burn it down while they cooked cookies? Or did you think of elves in Santa's workshop, you know, cobbling together the toys? What did you think of? Listen, what you think about those specific things entirely is dependent on the story that you're telling. Right? And it's the same thing that's true. So when we talk about doctrine, we're talking about what is the story that we're believing in? Because get this, in our world, there's a lot of people who say they believe in Jesus. There's even whole churches named after him. And yet when you look at the story, you go, these aren't the same story. This isn't the same thing. Like we're using the same words, but this is a different dictionary and it's a different dictionary because it's actually a different story. And so part of the equation, if you're gonna have confidence in, in that you know Christ is do you know the real Christ? Do you know the true Christ as he's revealed in scripture? So doctrine actually matters. This is what comes out in verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, there's so much in that phrase that we believe, that we trust, that we depend on, that we count on, that we pour ourselves out to, that we surrender to. That's what belief is, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the father. That's what it is to be the son of God. The son of God is not a creation later by a heavenly father, but the son of God is eternally existent as part of the Trinity, the triune God of the universe that made all things. Look at it, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus, the word means God saves. It means that God took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he died in our place. God saves his people from their sins. He doesn't make our salvation possible. He really does it. And he's Jesus Christ. This is not his last name, by the way. You can't send a letter to the Christs in Nazareth. Uh, It's his title. The word Christ means Messiah. It roots Jesus in a story. It roots Jesus in a tradition. It roots Jesus in a biblical story of the Hebrew scriptures. This Messiah, this Christ, this long-awaited one who would come to be a light to the nations as Israel was called to be but couldn't be. And it's to believe in his name, to believe in all that he represents, to believe in all of his glory, to be in all of his worth, to trust in all of his power and all of his goodness and all of his love. And if you believe in Jesus, but you don't have all that in there, it's not the same Jesus. If you believe, well, Jesus was a good example, but he wasn't God. Jesus was a good teacher, 
but he wasn't God. John's going, then you're on shaky ground, man. And it's not just here. It's all through this book. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you say, oh, Jesus is just a good prophet. Shaky ground. Chapter 4, verse 2. Look at verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Or look at chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Or chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Old Testament Messiah, has been born of God. Or chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne considering his Son. So in other words, God revealed Jesus to be God. God revealed Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And if you're like, no, he's a pretty good teacher, but I got it from here. He's going, you're calling God a liar. You should not have confidence before God when you call him a liar. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So so get this. You're not a Christian because you obey. You're not a Christian because you love. You're not a Christian just because you have all the right doctrine. But if you obey and you love and you believe the truth about who Jesus is, you got a lot of reasons to be confident before God. <laughs> Remember, you're not saved because of you. Right? The follow-up question, right? I asked the question, uh, if you were to die today, how, what percent is sure you'd, you'd go to heaven? The follow-up question is this. And if you got there and God said, why should I let you in, what would you say? And I want to be just crystal clear on this. The answer that you want to say is, because of the grace of Jesus. <laughs> I don't deserve to be here. You probably shouldn't let me in. But I'm coming in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'm told on the authority of God's word that he'll save me from my sins. Like if you, if you go and say, well, God, I've obeyed. You know, that wasn't it. Well, I've been really loving. I'm a really nice person. Yeah, that, that ain't it. Why well, believe in Jesus? He's going to go, yeah, so do the demons. So, so I hope you get this. You're not saved by, any of those, by being old, <laughs> obedient, loving, good doctrine. But you're confident if you do. And then you draw near and your heart's at ease and you have confidence to ask God. You go, well, but I don't know. I, I... Okay, verse 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. So you go, I'm not really sure what to do. Okay, then look at the promises of Jesus. Look at the goodness of the gospel. Turn your eyes to Christ. See his glory. See his beauty. See his love. See his forgiveness. Allow it to melt your heart. Believe that he's greater than your condemned heart. And he'll change you. And you'll walk in his freedom. And you'll walk in his joy. And you'll never be the same. Let's pray. God, thank you for the freedom that comes in Christ. Lord, we pray now 
that you would give us more of a sense of your affection, more of a sense of your enjoyment of us. God, would you scoop us up in your arms? Would you remind us? God, and I pray especially for those who have uh, a lot of reason right now to question whether they know you. God, would this be a wake-up call for them? Would they trust in you? Would they look to you? Would you give them the heart change that they need so that they could walk with confidence? And Lord, for those who just soberly say, you know what, Lord, I don't deserve this, but I really am saved because you've done something in me. God, would you just fill us with gratitude, with joy? Would you keep us from pride? Would you keep us from self-sufficiency? In every case, Lord, would we repent of our self-sufficiency and turn to you? We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Luke.